This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. In 1992, the artist Zoe Leonard wrote a poem called I Want a President. I want a president with no air conditioning. A president who stood online at the clinic, at the DMV, at the welfare office, and has been unemployed. This is a clip of Leonard reading her poem 24 years after she wrote it. The poem was inspired by Eileen Miles, a gay artist without health insurance who made less than $50,000 a year. Miles launched a presidential write-in campaign in 1991, even though they knew there was no way they'd ever win. During the 2016 election, the text became popular again. I want a black woman for president. I want someone with bad teeth and an attitude. I want someone who has eaten that nasty hospital food. In a response to the poem's resurgence, she said she's still taken by the idea that government can not only be of the people and for the people, but most importantly, by the people. That means us. It's an old idea, to be sure, but a damn good one. And it's not a trivial thing because so much of our lives turns on factors like our socioeconomic status, which is why it's a problem that the majority of Congress is made up of old, mostly white millionaires. I'm Sean Ailing, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Congresswoman Katie Porter, the U.S. representative from California's 47th Congressional District. She served in Congress since 2019. Porter is a politician, and like all of them, she has her critics and her supporters. She's an Ivy League-educated woman who lives in Orange County, not exactly the profile of the average American. But she's also a single mom with three kids who grew up during Iowa's farming crisis, an experience she details in her new book, I Swear. She's made a ton of headlines during her time in office. You've probably seen a few. And they're mostly for her ability to terrorize bankers with her whiteboard during hearings. She rents a one-bedroom apartment. She and her daughter sleep together in the same room. In Irvine, California, that average one-bedroom apartment is going to be $1,600. In this clip, she's grilling J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon about how an entry-level worker at his bank was supposed to make ends meet. For context, Jamie was making about $31 million at the time. You get those jobs out of high school, and she may have my job one day. 
Okay. She may, but Mr. Diamond, she doesn't have the ability right now to spend your $31 million. I'm fully sympathetic. She's short 567. What would you suggest she do? I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. That's a pretty good example of Porter's tenacity. And I wanted to have her on the show to talk about where that comes from. Congresswoman Katie Porter, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I have to say, I've had a long-standing unwritten rule of not interviewing active politicians, but I'm really glad we had an opportunity to do this because you really do strike me as a, a real person in a way very, very few of your colleagues do. Well, you know, people often will tell me that I'm very real, but when they bring that up, it's often because I've just done something embarrassing, like trip or... Like, you know, realize that my shoe needs to be repaired or have an ear, you know, have lost an earring at some point in the day. So sometimes you know, I, I feel like when people say that I'm quote authentic quote, what they really mean is that I'm I'm just kind of like having the same hectic day that an awful lot of working Americans have, which I think sometimes is not how people think about Congress. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I get it. Everyone has a brand now and and being real is part of your brand, but I think it works because you are, I think in ways we'll get into, an outlier in Congress. And you lean pretty hard into that, right? I mean, this is a, it's a pretty big part of your political identity. Well, I mean, for me, I just really, as a single mom, I, I don't have time to have some artificial brand, whatever that is. It, it just is so much less taxing in an already taxing job, political environment, as a mom, to just be who I am. And so this whole idea that I just don't have a lot of time for artifice and to pretend I I just need to get through my day. And that means trying to get everywhere I need to be and work as hard as I can and perform on all these things. And that doesn't really leave any time for, for things like, frankly, good hair or like a fake brand. I hear you. Can I ask you a sincere question? Yes, of course. Why in the hell did you want to go to Congress? And look, hear me out a second before you drop the hammer on me, right? I'm sure you have policy goals. I'm sure you want to improve people's lives. But that's not really what I'm asking. I mean, it's a, as you know, a whole other level of commitment to upend your life and subject yourself to a political process that is so dysfunctional and so stupid. I mean, honestly, I've always thought anyone who wants to participate... (laughs) in this process must be immediately suspect in some way because it's so invasive and you have to beg for money and you have to participate in the absurd spectacle that is Congress. And I say that as someone who thinks you're not crazy, who thinks you do mean well, which is partly why I'm curious why you decided to lunge into all of this in the first place. Why not just keep being a professor at UC Irvine? That's a pretty good gig. It was a great job. I mean, in every, I talk about this a little bit in my book, I swear, in every metric of what makes a job good, like colleagues, pay, commute, opportunities for advancement, <laughs> Congress is, is particularly the House is, is not it, right? Like yeah. I, a lot of us, including me, had, I think, by all those objective definitions that the rest of us use to evaluate whether a job is good, I had a better job before this. So, you know, I think beyond this sort of, I want to fix stuff and I want to, change policy in this or that area. The truth is that opportunities to get into government other ways were closed to me. 
and felt closed to me. So I was considered for a job at the Federal Reserve, and I just clearly wasn't the right cultural fit, is what I was told, for the Federal Reserve. And I had hoped I worked on the housing policy for the Clinton campaign toward the end as they were approaching the general election, and I was asked to join the transition team. And of course, there was no Clinton transition. She lost, right, or Trump won. And so those doors kept closing. And so I wasn't the right person. I wasn't qualified. I didn't have enough experience in government. I hadn't managed this. I hadn't. And so in, in the wake of all of those doors closing, for me, it was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go find a different one and just one that I can open. And it's up to me whether I walk through. And for me, that was Congress. So you get elected, right? This all becomes real. You go to Congress. Did you have a clear sense of what you were going to do? I mean, did you know you were going to be terrorizing bankers with your whiteboard? I mean, was that all part of the plan or did this sort of just happen organically? Definitely part of my motivation for running for Congress was frustration that folks in Washington, both in the administration and also in, in Congress, didn't pay enough attention to consumer protection. And I would argue that's still true, both for Democrats and Republicans. We don't focus enough on consumer protection because the stone cold truth is nobody likes to get ripped off. Not rich people, not poor people, not white, brown, black, young, old. Nobody likes to get cheated. So I actually think this is something that Washington needs to do more of. And so I asked to join the Financial Services Committee. I was put on that. I was prepared to work on sort of housing and consumer protection economic policy. The hearing part of it, though, developed in part because there are so many aspects, sometimes I think invisible, sometimes I think visible, about how your role is crafted as a new member of Congress, right? Like this is a very seniority-driven place, especially on the Democratic side, much less so actually on the Republican side. And so there's a lot of, you don't know how it works. You're going to need to wait your turn. You, you know, that bill has been mine since the mid-90s. So no, you can't work on that issue. And you wanted to say to them, like, you've been working on it since the 90s and you haven't gotten it done. Maybe give someone else a try, right? And so there were all these things that weren't open to me. But one of the few things that is egalitarian is that every member gets five minutes in a hearing. It doesn't matter whether you're the committee chair or the most junior member, you get your five minutes in a hearing. And so this seemed like something that I could actually do the work I wanted to do, and I actually had a real opportunity to do it. So I, that's really how it came about, is I just started really preparing for those hearings and thinking about what do I want to show my constituents that I'm working on, and how do I do that in those five minutes? I want to go back to the outsider identity for a second and dig in on what that means to you, because a lot of politicians try to occupy this lane. I mean, you've got someone like Ted Cruz out here, who's a Princeton and Harvard guy who tries really hard and fails epically to perform his populist shtick, whatever the hell that is. And then there's you. You know, you went to Yale and Harvard, right? That's as elite as elite gets. But you don't strike me as a phony in the way that Cruz does. And I'm not saying that because you're here. I really mean it. I mean, I think you actually give a shit. And maybe your background in bankruptcy law is part of that. We, we can get into it. But there is this tension between where you came from, you know, growing up in Iowa during a farming crisis, and where you are now. And you seem pretty comfortable with that. And it's become a real political asset for you. Am I overstating all that? Or is this something that you're very conscious of? I mean, my first interactions kind of with politicians and government 
as a child growing up in the farm crisis in the Midwest were that all these folks flooded into Iowa and Iowa was so important politically, right? Because we were the first presidential state and we had the caucuses and, and yet when we needed help, everybody ignored us and the farm crisis was really devastating in ways that we still continue to see, I think, among rural communities in terms of substance use and lack of economic opportunity and lack of investment in education. So I think from the very beginning, I had a sense that politicians don't always keep their promises and being important at election time doesn't always translate into you're being important to them when you need them. And so I think that is something that has imbued kind of how I think about how to do this job. Your dad was a farmer, right? My dad was a farmer. My grandfather and great-grandfather, I grew up in the the two-bedroom house that my great-grandfather had built. And that house is now owned by somebody else. I mean, that all came to an end during the farm crisis. And my siblings and I all live outside of Iowa, built new and fabulous lives. I love, love, love living in California. You're never going to pry me out of there. And my children are very Californian. <laughs> but there is a sense of having thought that government would be there for you and having been betrayed that I think drives a lot of the work that I do with regard to oversight. I don't care what politicians announce at press conferences. I care what happens in people's lives. And that gap is sometimes huge. What bothers me personally about the pseudo-populist types, you know, like a, like a Cruz or a, um, a J.D. Vance, my God. Oh. They pretend to be something they're not. They perform an identity that they don't really possess. And if nothing else, you, you seem to really enjoy calling out the hypocrisies of the populist bullshit. And I, for one, am absolutely here for it. So I commend you for that. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I also think there are, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, realities of my life as a single mom that keep me very, very wedded to what it's like for a lot of Americans. So, you know, when childcare providers shut down, that was a huge problem for me during the pandemic. And I remember folks in Washington, like many months later, being like, this might be affecting women in the workforce. And I was like, no shit, right? Like, how can you just be figuring this out now? But that's because I I am a mom with kids in childcare. People often say to me in the grocery store, I can't believe you're here. And I, I always want to say back to them, is there some other way to feed these children? Because my God, I would love to know about it, right? So... It's just me filling up the gas tank. It's just me taking my daughter to a water polo game and thinking about how much the gas is costing me to get there. And so those things are, I think, present in my life. My kids are public school children. So it's, I think about the investment in education a little differently, I think, as a result. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about how Congresswoman Porter's working class politics was shaped during her time in law school. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? 
State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. I mean, I mentioned your background in bankruptcy law. Is that training, is that experience, that background a big reason for your focus on class and wealth and working class issues? I think I was drawn to bankruptcy law in part because of my upbringing and found in that class, as well as in some of the the work that I did as a college student, I think I was looking for answers and explanations and way to understand what had happened to my family and my community and the economy where I lived. And so, you know, I didn't go off to law school to be a bankruptcy professor. Like really very few people roll into law school telling you that they want to be like commercial lawyers. But when I got there hearing, I was Elizabeth Warren's student and I, I remember very vividly sitting in the front row of her bankruptcy class. And I sat in the front row because I thought she wouldn't call on me. That did not work, but it was a good, it was a good strategy. That's a rookie mistake. Uh-uh. No, I was right in the line of sight, in fact. But I remember hearing her talk about how capitalism is so powerful in how it incentivizes risk takers and in the way that it can reward winners, but it doesn't tell us what to do about the people on the other side, the people who gamble and bet wrong when they open a small business, on the people who, you know, there's competition in the marketplace, and that means some people lose. And what do we do about those companies and those businesses? And bankruptcy is really the the legal answer to how we help those things get a fresh start and come back into the economy in a productive way. So I think it, a little bit of a chicken egg thing, it I think I got interested in it because of that. But then my work in bankruptcy, listening to hundreds of families talk about what they had gone through with debt collectors, facing foreclosure, in trouble because of medical debt. I think those stories are always with me. When I questioned Jamie Dimon, for example, about how a teller couldn't make ends meet every single month at his bank, After how many months of not being able to make ends meet and borrowing on a credit card for food, does that person who works full-time at his bank wind up themselves in bankruptcy? And so I I do think I carry those stories forward with me. This is a good moment to get to your book, you know, and what you have to say in there about class and ideology is so fascinating 
to me. We can dive into it, but maybe I'll just start by asking you, what surprised you the most in terms of the class divisions in Congress? I mean, I, I know you knew lots of people in Congress had lots of money. I mean, we all know that. But were you surprised at how much money, how much wealth people in Congress had? Or were you surprised at how significantly it actually shaped their politics across party lines? I had a sense, as do many Americans, that somehow people serve in Congress and end up millionaires. We've all heard that, right? How does that happen, people say? That can't be right. What I learned as a candidate, even before I got to Congress, was that you get to Congress because you're a millionaire. That is, all the advantages in how we conduct our campaigns go to people who are themselves wealthy, who know other wealthy people, who have family who can help them. And so the problem starts at the candidate level and who who is deemed to be electable and have a strong launch to their campaign is all deeply infused with, with class and, and money and privilege. And I also think I had a misperception that Republicans were the rich people and that Democrats were working class, middle class, people trying to make ends meet. Whether that is true amongst the electorate or not, and I actually tend to think it's not true, it is definitely not true in Congress. So when we look at who is trading stocks in Congress and millions of dollars of stocks in Congress, it's Democrats just as much as Republicans and sometimes more so. Part of that is Democrats tend to be older, but it is it is real on both sides of the aisle, I would say, and I had that as a misconception. I mean, this line in particular jumped out at me. I mean, I, I highlighted it immediately. I knew I was going to ask you. <laughs> About it. And now I'm quoting you. You write, in the House of Representatives, the privilege of wealth divides ruthlessly. Ideological differences might be the most visible to the public, but the class differences cut the most sharply in our experiences. I mean, do you think that class interest trump ideological interest in Congress? Am I stating it too crudely there? So when we think about voting on policy, class is a part of it but ideology is probably a bigger part of it. But when we think about who runs for Congress, who continues to do this job year after year, class, I think, is really, really important and, and makes a huge difference. So the folks who have existing wealth are the first ones to say, we shouldn't give ourselves a pay raise for the last 15 or 20 years because they're not doing this for a salary, right? I mean, I, I say this in the book, like, I plan to do public service in this job. I didn't necessarily think that being in Congress was community service in the sense that it wouldn't be treated like a actual job in which you worked hard and you did a great job and you deserve to be paid. And so I think there are all kinds of ways. I mean, people who would say to me, you should make sure your kids come to the White House picnic how would I do that? It's, you know, $400, $500 to fly someone from California to Washington in, at 4th of July weekend. What salary would let me do that? Not the one that I make, right? Having to have two places of residence. And so I think your experience and kind of the extent to which you view this as kind of an honorific post-retirement almost kind of I want to give back versus... 
I'm here to do a job and serve the American people, that class really creates a difference there. I mean, it's about access to power, right? I mean, if you're making millions trading stocks and probably benefiting from insider information, who the hell cares if you get a 10% raise? You don't need it. You don't need it. And I think, you know, we see this. I mean, look, Democrats had control of the White House, the Senate, and the House last Congress, and we did not pass a congressional ban on stock trading. So you just can't blame that on Republicans. That is about us. And it's not that every Republican, I mean, there are Republicans who oppose that, just like there are Democrats who oppose that. But this effort to make, that is a class issue more than it is a partisan issue. Totally. I mean, this is the kind of argument a lot of people on the left have made and keep making, right? That both parties are filled with millionaire power brokers, who are performing for different constituencies, and I, I emphasize the word performing there, but still in the end, serve the power structure, right? I mean, that's an oversimplification, of course, but you know, you even poke a little bit of fun at Nancy Pelosi in the book, right? I mean, for strutting around in a $3,000 coat, she jokingly said she just found in her closet, and I think she's worth well over $100 million. I mean, do you hear this sort of complaint about wealth and power in both parties very often in Congress? I mean, how do you respond to it? Congress members want to pretend that this doesn't exist. And I think that fails to serve us or the institution or most importantly, the American people very well. So there's definitely a sense that, you know, our titles are all the same. We're all Congress members, with the exception of the speaker, right, or the leader. You know, we all get paid the same, again, with the exception of the speaker. We all get the same benefits. But we don't all live the same lives in Congress, I will tell you that. And so, you know, I live, like so many people do in Washington, in a studio basement apartment. And I'm grateful to be able to afford this. I, this is the best of the places I've lived since I've been a Congress member. But I think, you know, I have colleagues who, when they got to Washington, the first thing they did upon being elected was purchase a condo. And that's just beyond the like, I can't imagine being able to do that. It's a struggle for me to pay for my living expenses in California while I'm also having to pay for them here. This is making me think about, I mentioned Pelosi, but why did they, why did they take you off the House Financial Services Committee in 2021? You were making lots of noise, grilling bankers with your whiteboard. I mean, you sort of enter the public consciousness that way. And it was, it was really quite something to watch. You were quite good at that, better than I think anyone else in that building. Why in the hell would the party not want you doing more of that? Is there some reason for that? Because you seem to be super effective <laughs> in that role. So I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I'm, I'm grateful that I'm now on an oversight committee that has jurisdiction over financial services. So I have a another roundabout way to work on those issues. But it reflects how we do committees and the fact that it's a seniority-driven system. So because I was relatively junior, it was my first year in Congress, and we lost seats in the House, that means the Republicans get more committee members and the Democrats get fewer. And I served on two committees, the Financial Services Committee and the Oversight Committee. And I knew that I would get kicked off the Oversight Committee just because we had to change the ratios if I didn't prioritize it, like say this is my first choice. So I made the oversight committee my first choice. And that's on me. That was my decision. I could have stayed on financial services had I made it my first choice. Traditionally, there have been mm, somewhere like the neighborhood of 8, 10, 12 spots the last few years for members who wanted to volunteer to serve on financial services, even though they already had 
a full load of other committee assignments. Think about it as someone who teaches, you're supposed to teach four classes and then you're willing to pick up an extra, you know, supervising a club kind of assignment as a teacher. So I asked to be one of those people and there were 10 of us who applied or something like that and there were eight spots and I was one of the two people who didn't get it. One of the reasons I'm I'm really digging into the class stuff here, in part because you you lean into this in the book, is an interest of mine. And like we talked about this, I mean, I, I get that you're a product of elite academic institutions, but you don't speak and act like a disconnected technocrat, even though you're you're trained like one, and that's part of your appeal. Why do you think Democrats haven't been able to shake this branding problem, for lack of a better word? Right? I mean, they're not they're not perfect. God knows I have my my issues with the Democrats, but the Democratic Party is certainly more favorable to working class interest than Republicans, but Democrats are just perpetually seen as the party of elites by roughly half the country. Why? Why can't they fix that? Part of it, I think, has to do with Democrats lacking confidence in their ability. It sort of feeds on itself. Like at some point, this bubbled up, and it was before my time in Congress. I arrived with this fully entrenched. That if we just tell people who we are and what we're fighting for in the most direct and simple way, they somehow won't vote for us. I think it's the opposite. I've won three really tough races in Orange County, taking on some very, you know, standing up to special interests, pushing for, you know, expanded health care and things like that, fighting climate change in a very purple area because I'm just a very straight shooter. And I think we fail because I think we hide behind sometimes our policies. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things that contribute to this. One, and I I think you see this on both sides of the aisle, but I think a little maybe worse sometimes on the Democratic side is that people want to sound important. And so the more acronyms they use and the more mumbo jumbo they say, they hope that that makes them sound like they know what they're doing. But we're not fooling anybody because the proof of whether or not we know what we're doing is in people's real lives. So the classic example of this recently was during the last election, Democrats kept saying amongst ourselves, we don't have a good message on inflation. And one of the suggestions was, well, don't talk about it. As if, as if, like people don't notice as they drive by that. Like, I literally would drive my minivan right past the gas station and think, I'm not filling up today because I am not in the mood, right? I would go into the grocery store. I told my kids, no more Cocoa Pebbles. The Cocoa Pebbles are costing like $7 a box. You cannot get them. You have to eat Cocoa Puffs or something else that's cheaper. They're never on sale. I mean, did we think other people we're having those conversations and those moments. And so the solution is to stand on your two feet and say, inflation sucks. It is terrible and painful and hard. And I am committed to fighting it. And here's how I'm going to do it. God, I'm so glad that you're saying this. And again, I hardly ever talk to an actual active Democratic politician. So I'm I'm leaning into this opportunity right now. And it, <laughs> it blows my mind that what you're saying is is exceptional here. Right. I mean, Democrats seem so constitutionally bad at just doing basic politics that it explodes my brain. You know, you said something in an interview a few years ago that I read when I was preparing for this and I knew immediately I wanted to bring it up. And you you almost kind of did yourself now. Oh, boy. No, it's good. It's good. You were talking about how your office has a policy that, you know, all of your communications to the public should be at an eighth grade level, which is not to say dumb. It's what you're saying now. Right. The point is to just speak in clear common, accessible, 
relatable language. And this is during the throes of the pandemic. And you were, you were talking about the use of the word impacted, right? And you, you were saying people are not impacted by the pandemic. They're sickened. They're, they're scared. They're, they're laid off. They're confused, whatever. You know, impacting is what meteorites do when they land on a planet, right? I mean, I think this is actually a pretty profound critique of how Democrats message and communicate. And obviously, I, I very much agree with you, and it drives me absolutely nuts. I mean, why isn't what you're saying here just the obvious conventional wisdom in the Democratic Party? I don't understand why anyone would think using acronyms and talking like a technocrat is a good way to connect with voters. What the hell is going on here? I don't get it. You have to be brave to tell people what you really think, because there's some chance they're going to disagree with you or they're going to tell you that they think differently. Maybe this partly comes from having, I mean, I know this partly comes from having been a professor and I taught really, oh, you want to talk about technical? I taught something called the Uniform Commercial Code, and that is just <laughs> as sexy as it sounds. Yeah. I mean, when you teach a class like that, you have to figure out how to bring it alive for people and how to make it real. And so I think partly as a teacher, I'm always thinking about where's my audience starting from? How many of these students actually did the homework? Like maybe half? So you've got to start class there if you really want to move everybody forward. And I think it's the exact same thing with elected officials. But I think the reason people, and I think Democrats, you know, operate from this position sometimes is they lack confidence that they can actually persuade people to agree with us, which I find a little bit nuts given that we know in poll after poll after poll that we have policies like preventing gun violence and protecting and expanding social security and Medicare and addressing climate change and helping with the costs of raising kids that are incredibly popular across the electorate. So I don't know where this comes from. I think, frankly, it predates my time in politics. I think it happened in democratic circles when I was a kid, frankly, like sort of think Reagan-Clinton era. And Look, I think one of the reasons that it matters to have new voices in Washington is that you have regular people like me who are looking at Washington, D.C. and saying, what is that person talking about? And you just think, why don't they just tell us the truth? And so part of my job was to, you know, my reaction to coming here was just, I'm just going to be me. And if that works out and I'm able to get reelected and people support me, great. And if not then somebody else will represent this area, you know, my area of Orange County. What can be done to improve Congress? Or is it beyond repair? That's coming up after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. 
but I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Do you think Congress is just broken? And I want to be clear, right? Because the easy answer is, yeah, there. But I'm not asking if it's dysfunctional. I think we can all agree that it's a bit dysfunctional at the moment. I'm asking you as someone who's actually sitting in Congress right now, if you think the institution as currently constituted and given all the incentives pushing around the, the people who work there, do you think the institution is just irredeemably broken? No, not irredeemably broken. Inefficient and maybe a little corrupted, Sometimes, yes, but not irredeemably broken. So I'll I'll give you a great example of this. When I ran for Congress, I decided this was 2017, 2018. I was elected in 2018. I decided not to take corporate PAC money. And I actually was so naive that I thought this wasn't something that Democrats did. I thought that was only something Republicans did. Oh, no, 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 no. Contraire. So I decided I wasn't going to take corporate PAC money. I don't think I had any idea how controversial or unusual of a decision I was making at the time. But over time, there have become dozens and dozens of us who do this, you know, 30, 40 people, um, you know, most everybody who's the newly elected Democratic senators, with maybe one exception, don't take corporate PAC money now. So we have changed this norm. So it's not irredeemably broken, but we do have to do some work to fix it. So if we want to attract younger voices to Congress, we have to change these models in our head about you should be able to write yourself a check to your campaign for half a million dollars if necessary. Like, we can't keep having that model or we will keep getting what we've gotten, which is a Congress that's disproportionately members who are quite wealthy. So I wouldn't say irredeemably broken. I would say actually the fixes are straightforward, are within members' control, By and large, this is about our internal rules. It is about kind of how we run our own business as Democrats. And I think that can, by the way, have a powerful effect on on changing what people expect of Republicans, too. So, yeah, this is not like trying to fix the Supreme Court, which is like really hard and requires rethinking like fundamental longstanding institution. This is actually low-hanging fruit. It just seems so hard for people with their little alligator arms to reach up and grab the fruit and do the work. And if you could wave a magic wand or if you're a dictator for a day in Congress and you could change just any one thing about the whole process, all of it, what would you change? I mean, I think it has to be campaign finance. You know, there's just no way we're going to elect the right people and have them listen to the people when they get elected if we don't 
change that. Although I want to be clear, that's less of a rule change and more of a norm change, right? Like, I don't take money from federal lobbyists. And you know what I had to go through to make that decision? Nothing. I just decided I wasn't going to do it. And that was that. So it actually, I think that waiting for the system to change us is where we're falling short here. We ought to be changing the norms and the system through our own conduct. This may sound like a stupid, superficial thing, but how much of a difference would it make if we got the cameras out of Congress? Because I feel like the impulse to perform and create these moments of the, the sound bites and, and the clips for cable news is a really crappy incentive for lots of reasons. But the cameras aren't the problem. The cameras, I think, provide some accountability. If you didn't have any cameras, half these people wouldn't even show up on any given day. If there was no, you know, if nobody was taking attendance, they literally wouldn't come. I think you've always had, and I think it's important for us to remember this, particularly in this moment, there has always been theater to politics, to democracy. The theater that comes with democracy is a much better alternative than the sort of authoritarian who hides in his castle and, and executes people, right? And, and I mean, rules with fascism. So the theater that comes with democracy is, is somewhat built in. And I think part of having an electoral system, you know, I think the cameras provide an opportunity for people to show the American people Congress at work. And if what they're seeing a lot of the times is a Congress that they think is a joke, that's our problem, not the cameras' problems. I actually am for more transparency in government, not less. It sounds like a little thing, but one of the things I do is I disclose the meetings that I take so that my constituents can see who I'm listening to. And even little things like that, I think, are important. And so I actually think, despite some of the pain, and oh boy, sometimes is it painful, that things like social media, things like having cameras, actually overall are giving people more of a window into what's happening in Congress. And if they're not liking what they're seeing, at least it's generating a movement to change it. And I think that's a positive. And so I actually think we had too many years of nobody knowing what was going on in Washington that caused a lot of where we are today. So I actually think we're on a course correction. Yeah, I mean, look, I guess part of where I'm coming from there is it just, I think it would be great if we had a little less theater and a little more sausage making, as it were, because it may make it easier for people to actually get stuff done and do the dirty work of compromise. But Absolutely. The barriers to legislation are that we are so polarized and the lack of, and the, it just deepens with every redistricting cycle. Our districts get more R, the Democratic districts get more Democratic. And the people who are like me, who represent these swing districts, you know, that we are fewer and fewer in number and they get more and more expensive and the fights get tougher to hang on to them because there's fewer of them. So I actually think if we want to have a politics in which there is more ability to listen across the aisle and find that common ground, that in part starts with creating congressional districts that send those kinds of voices to Washington. I know you're running for Senate to fill Dianne Feinstein's seat in California. Why the Senate? What do you think you can do there that you can't do currently in the House? Well, the Senate gives an opportunity to work on a wider range of issues, a bigger variety of kinds of people and problems. California is an amazing state. You fill in the blank. We have the most of virtually everything. 
from the best to the worst. And to have the ability to hear and go and see and weigh in on the issues in a state as diverse and as important as California, I think really matters. And I'll, I'll give you one example. I'm a big advocate for universal free school lunch. Our school districts spend more money asking kids if they deserve the lunch than it would cost to just give a lunch to everybody who wants one. So that's some real government waste there. That program goes through the agriculture bill and there's not a lot of agriculture in coastal Orange County. So it is hard for me to work on that issue. So I think for me, it's having a bigger swath of issues, a bigger swath of communities to be able to connect with. And frankly, to help us win across California and across the country, I think California needs to send someone into Washington, into the politics for its senator who knows how to talk and get people across party lines on board with our policies. And so often I think California because it's a, quote, democratic state, who we send actually makes it harder for us to win those tough races. I want to be all in for helping people both in California and across the country win the toughest races. And I think that's something that that I uniquely kind of bring to this race. And it's an opportunity for California. Again, the book is called I Swear Politics is Messier Than My Minivan. Congresswoman Katie Porter, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming in to do it. So thank you. Thank you. And I just want to say, I appreciate you not asking me just how messy my minivan actually is. We pride ourselves on being highbrow uh, in these parts. So <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think about this episode. Drop us a line at the gray area at Vox.com. We really do read all of the notes. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends on whatever social media you use. It all helps, really. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.